Well, as we're continuing with 1 Corinthians, uh, we need to keep asking ourselves, what is Paul trying to do with the Corinthians? Why did he spill much ink writing them? To help us review where we've been and preview where we're going today, I want us to think of paradigm shifts. Now, what is a paradigm shift? According to one dictionary, it's a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. The phrase has its origins in the scientific community, and it applied to major discoveries. Examples include moving from an Earth-centered model of the universe to a sun-centered model. So out with the old miasma theory of disease, in with the new germ theory. Such ideas were revolutionary in impact. See, a true paradigm shift has a widespread, far-reaching, lasting impact. Sure, it starts small, begins at the head knowledge level, but it does not remain there. The germ theory I just mentioned didn't stay in the laboratories and textbooks. It transformed the way we think of vaccinations and education, public health and government policies. And I argue that Christian faith is the greatest paradigm shift. It was a revolutionary idea, transformed the Western society. You can say it started way back with the Greco-Roman culture in the early church days. In Acts 17, Paul's enemies at Thessalonica, they weren't entirely wrong when they accused the first missionaries to Europe. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Later, the apostle preached Jesus and the resurrection in the Athenian marketplace. Sure, Paul sounded like a babbler and a proclaimer of foreign gods, but there was enough novelty in his talk to land him an invitation to Areopagus. May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, they asked. The response to Paul's gospel presentation, there was at best tepid. But then the apostle to the Gentiles went on to find much fruit in Corinth. The Lord had many people in that city. And you would think with such a large number of believers, enriched in everything by Jesus in all utterance and all knowledge, a great change would take place in Corinth, and even beyond that to the entire region of Achaia. Now, I can't help but picture the non-Christians noticing on Sundays, asking, what's going on in, there, in that house there? Like, did you hear what they're teaching and saying in the streets? Why are so many gathered there? They seem diverse, yet unified. How is it that a mass of people from different backgrounds and social classes are singing together like that? So it may have looked like radical unity from a distance, but it's it's a display of God's power and wisdom that cannot be ignored as it's intended to be. But upon a closer look, there are tragic problems and divisions at this church. Just like any lesser group of the world, there are contentions, carnality, envy, strife. If anything, the beleaguered Thessalonian Christians were better witnesses for the gospel and and had impact in the region. 
As for the Corinthian Christians, they needed less Corinth and more Christ in their lifestyle. And that's why Paul began the body of 1 Corinthians the way he did, pushing them towards maturity and oneness in Christ. He spends the first few chapters doing all he can, reminding, teaching, citing scriptures, using illustrations, exhorting. And to push them towards change, Paul didn't have to come up with a, you know, something totally new. He just leads them back to what they already knew. Maybe they haven't thought through the entire implications of what they knew. The apostle brings them back to the great gospel paradigm. He centralizes the message of the cross. It should be like the sun in our solar system, so that everything else will fall into their orbits. Direct their eyes to basic gospel truths and its brilliance to shed light on their various issues and expose their blind spots. I think C.S. Lewis puts it well when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So gospel truths remembered and applied lead to gospel living. Uh, he's been doing this in every chapter thus far. Chapter 1, when we as sanctified believers behold God's Son crucified, we see power and wisdom, not weakness and foolishness. Everything in existence takes its humble place in light of the cross. Chapter 2, the best that this world can offer, even the rulers of this age, become obsolete, cold, dark, and lifeless. That's because they do not grasp God's wisdom in Jesus brought to light through the Holy Spirit. Even the ministers of God grow dim and become lesser lights in comparison to Christ. Chapter 3, sure, they have their roles, they plant, they water, they build, but what is that compared to God, who is our light, who gives the increase, who sent his son Christ as the church's foundation? Chapter 4, so when Christ our master shines at the forefront, his servants and stewards recede to the background. Then as we continue in chapter 4 today, we see Paul wants to reinforce this paradigm shift to magnify Jesus and at the same time minimize the Corinthians, Paul himself and his fellow apostles. He'd gladly echo the words of John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. So let's see how he does that in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to 13. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to 13. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? Another, uh, And what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You're already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. 
But I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the obscouring of all things until now. So passages like this one challenges our preconceived notions of Paul. The famous classic paintings picture him as this erudite scholar, and he is. We frame him as a logical and smart, and again, he is. But do remember that he has this guardian aura about him. He's a parental figure to the saints. He's a spiritual father to the Corinthians, and we'll look at that role closely in the next passage. But even now in today's passage, you can imagine Paul as a disappointed dad. He's lecturing his immature son in his room. I'll call him Coley. He's sporting a mohawk hair. Why a mohawk hair? I don't know, because this is my illustration. I can do whatever I want. The walls of Corey's room is plastered with posters of worldly heroes. I hope I'm not speaking prophetically here. Um, Anyways, in dealing with this rebellious kid, um, Paul hasn't quite reached for the spanking paddle yet. He doesn't want to. Rather, he starts with pleas and warnings. Son, you need to check yourself, right? And then Paul tells Corey, I'm going to give you a reality check. I want you to follow me to work, and I'll show you what it means to carry the Christian name. And this imaginary scene helps up to sum up 1 Corinthians 4, 6 to 13. Verse 6 is the thesis statement. It reveals the reasons behind Paul's argument up to this point in the letter. It exposes the faulty Corinthian central model. Verses 7 to 8, moving forward there, form the check yourself sharp rebuke in order to deflate them and their ego, somebody needs to burst their bubble and it's going to be Paul the dad. And then from verses 9 to 13, Paul wants his son to have a reality check. It's sort of like a take your son to work day. Oh, you think the Christian life's easy. You think it's about spotlights, likes, retweets, going viral. No, I'll show you what our Lord meant when he said the world will hate us and a servant is not greater than his master. So there will be two sermon points, and I'll give them in a minute, but it helps to begin with verse 6. As I said, it's the thesis statement that contains Paul's plan, and I think you see two purposes there. So verse 6 links us both to what Paul said already and to what he's getting ready to say. By these things, he's referring to what was said already up to this point. Paul used the names of Cephas, more prominently Apollos, and his own name for good reasons. 
There were these were household names for Jewish and Gentile Christians of his day. It's as if I use names like David Jeremiah, you know, Alistair Begg, John MacArthur to illustrate a point. And by using well-known names, Paul's concealing, concealing the real names of the real culprits, the real faction leaders. He'd rather be more direct with them and confront them when he's there in person, not through a letter. So to minimize damage, yet still attack the problem, he took this approach with names. This is what Paul means when he said he figuratively transferred these two things to himself and Apollos. And it was for the Corinthians' sake, the apostle did this. Paul's trying to get their eyes off of the poor examples among them and look at better examples in Christ and his ministers. So two purpose statements in verse 6 are, first, learn in them, Paul and other true leaders, not to think beyond what is written. That is, know who you are, just as they know who they are, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Believers are nothing more and nothing less than what the Lord calls them to be. There's great freedom in that. There's God-given humility and dignity at the same time. The second purpose statement follows the first. If, one, we stay within scriptural bounds, let God's word define us, let God's word form our identity, shape us, then, two, we wouldn't be arrogant or puffed up, to use Paul's language. Vertically speaking, we won't be getting so big-headed, arrogantly resisting God who's above us. Horizontally speaking, we won't be rubbing others the wrong way, sinfully devouring and breaking each other down, one against another. But Paul's vision is that we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand while we fit together and edify one another. So verse 6 presents the, uh, Paul's plan and purposes for us to learn humility from him and the other apostles. Now, two lessons follow after verse 6. The markers for these lessons are found in a simple small word, for. You see it at, stand at the beginning of verse 7 and at the beginning of verse 9. By the way, there's another different word for for in the original language, and it's in the middle of verse 9. But that for in the middle of verse 9 has a relatively minor function. So the major moves and turns in Paul's arguments are these. Verses 7 and 8 follows and explains verse 6. Verses 9 to 13 follows and explains verse 8. Now besides the key joint words, right, I say that what binds verses 6 to 8 together are three questions and three exclamations. These are emotionally charged words, punctuation marks and all, meant to stir compunction. It's like S4 verses 9 to 13. You got something like a sandwich structure. At the top and bottom, verses 9 and 13, there's a repeated phrase, we have been made and world. In between are dramatic contrasts between what the Corinthians experience and what the apostles experience. So with all that in mind, here are what I call two apostolic lessons for humility. These are lessons of true grace and 
disgrace. First, true grace prevents a haughty and hasty attitude. True grace prevents a haughty and hasty attitude. That's verses 6 to 8. Secondly, disgrace characterizes Christian legacy on earth. Disgrace characterizes Christian legacy on earth. That's verses 9 to 13. First, true grace prevents a haughty and hasty attitude. So I'll pick up from verse 7 where we find the three questions. Question number one is a who question. It's for the overly individualistic individual using the second person singular pronoun, Paul singling out the one or few causing the most trouble. You can rephrase it as, who do you think you are? You know, why do you pop out your chest like that? And, you know, peacock everywhere, right? Question number two is a what question. You go from looking at yourself in the mirror to looking down at what's in your hand. What is one thing in your possession that hasn't been given to you? It sounds like something you'd ask a spoiled brat, anyone with a narrow sense of entitlement. Question three builds on the previous one, and it's a why question. If all that you have are gracious gifts from God, why act like you deserve it all? Grace, as it is truly, as it is defined biblically, prevents a haughty attitude. It does not allow us to boast. We're going back now to the root of the gospel. When it comes to us being saved, grace and works are incompatible. Works exclude grace. Romans 4 talks about, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as death. Grace excludes works. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should bow. That's Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. And so as we see here, true grace excludes boasting. Paul had to remind the Corinthians of this central doctrine of grace. True grace also prevents a hasty attitude. So we go from the three questions of verse 7 to the three exclamations of verse 8. Paul was asking rhetorically, now he's yelling satirically. What's all this commotion about? Why is Paul the dad in such an uproar? I'm going to introduce a big phrase now to crystallize the Corinthian problem here. But don't let that big phrase intimidate you. Once you hear the definition, I think you'll agree that it's a common problem among believers of all ages, all eras. I can't put it better than Samuel Lewis Johnson, a pretty famous preacher, so I'm going to just quote him. So listen carefully. This is a quote. Quote, uh, Evidently, the Corinthians had what some of the interpreters have called an over-realized eschatology. They not only look to the future and look to the present, but the present is so significant for them that they have already begun to reign. 
They're in the millennial kingdom right now. It's the idea the apostle is underlining here. They should have been looking to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the entering into the kingdom of God upon the earth. But already these individuals are in the kingdom. Already they are full. So the idea of the kingdom was a place, was a kingdom in which men would have the things that they lack. They would have all the food, all the pleasure, all the luxuries. And they are in that kingdom before we are. This is really an over-realized eschatology. They thought that they were in the kingdom already. End quote. So overrealize eschatology. Don't let all the syllables trip you up. Know what it is and beware of it. Basically, the Corinthians have taken the twofold concept already not yet, and they just got rid of the not yet part. So let me try an illustration now. Now imagine you're going to work and it's a and it's payday. Right? By the way, you didn't sleep well last night. The traffic was terrible. You spilled coffee on your favorite shirt. After eating a stale lunch, you get that afternoon energy slump. The coffee's not working, you give up. You start humming that country song from 2003. It's only half past 12, but it, I don't care. It's five o'clock somewhere. You shut down the computer. You decide to run out to the bank before it closes, deposit your paycheck. Pick up some pizza on the way back to the office. After you're full, you kick your feet up on the desk and doze off for a bit. Now it's 3.30, the boss comes in, we'll call him Paul. He stands behind you and gives you the cold death stare for a good minute. Oh majesty, oh king, you got some cheese on your face. I see you already cashed your paycheck. Is, is it five o'clock? Oh no, it isn't. I wish it was so, I mean, I can get, I like to get off too. Like you, I got, I got, I want to get my weekend started. I got things to do, places to go. So that's by illustration, I think, what Paul's saying here. Know what time it is. Know where you are. Your work on earth's not done yet. I don't care how old you are, you know. You're still breathing, right? Think about some of the great men in the Bible, right? There's more to come in heaven, but now is not the time to rest. True grace prevents a hasty attitude. So as is the case with many of us today, the Corinthians were all in a hurry for all the glory. They wanted to fast forward to the boring and mundane parts. They wanted to cut in line. But as the Bible teaches us repeatedly, there's no lasting reward without long-suffering. There's no crown without the cross. Paul knew this well, not just in theory, but in practice. His call to apostleships marked with painful experiences. Our Lord himself said this about him from the very beginning. This is Acts 9.16. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And he, he, saw, he saw it all, right? And our call to discipleships marked with suffering too. It's no wonder Paul says elsewhere, for the Lord's sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep 
for the slaughter. That leads us to the next lesson of humility. Disgrace characterizes Christian legacy on earth. It's good for us to open our eyes to this truth. So it's time for a field trip, or as I said earlier, take your son to work day. And here's what the daily grind looks like for the apostles. Apostles are privileged, of course, to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. He himself sent them out to share the good news with the lost. But if you think they get all the fame and fortune, you'd be way off. There's a spotlight on them, but it's not the kind you might like. Right? As you see in verse 9, the publicities more like something like you see at a public execution. It's closer to what Jesus suffered on Calvary. Now, if we're honest, we may gasp at such a thought. We may even try to distance ourselves from it. We want to be close to God, but far from persecution. It's true what they say. You know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. But Paul refuses to allow that separation. He goes on another satirical rebuke in verse 10. The Corinthians want all of the wisdom, the power, the distinctions we have in Christ, yet they don't want any of the foolishness, the weakness, the dishonor for the sake of Christ. To demonstrate how ridiculous this is, I'm recalling the last wedding I officiated about two months ago. Though they're young, the couple, they still wanted to recite those traditional vows from that old book of common prayer. You know, the one that goes, I blank, take you blank, for my husband or wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, until death do us part. Now imagine if I said at the ceremony, I blank, take you blank for my husband or wife to have and to hold from this day forward only for better on the condition you're rich. If you're healthy, if not, we'll part ways before death. That's not only unromantic, it's cheap, it's ugly. It's not precious, it's not beautiful. It's not a holy matrimony. When we're called in the grace of Christ, we're also called to disgrace for Christ. Philippians 1.29 is one of my favorite verses. reminds us, To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And even if you're not suffering right now, Hebrews 13.3 tells us how to relate to those who are suffering. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Believers in Paul's time were tempted to distance themselves from him and others like him, their chains, their disgrace. But don't look away. Look through verses 11 to 13. 
Know the legacy of the apostles and see how it continues in the saints today. See what's happening in the front lines. Hear the stomachs growl, the throats parched. Don't turn your eyes away from the exposed skins, the scars and bruises on their backs. Observe their calloused hands. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. Refusing to return evil for evil, reviling for reviling, and rather blessing their enemies. Carefully follow them in the persecutions they endure. Though they're subject to terrible treatment, they're going to entreat instead of retreat. If that's not enough in terms of horrific images, right, of being a true Christian, Paul has more in the second half of verse 13. Filth and obscouring are rare words in the Bible and for good reasons. They're demeaning terms. Something like scum, dregs, stuff scrubbed out, thrown down the drain, tossed in a trash bin. You can't recycle or reuse these things. As labels, we're talking about worthless individuals, criminals condemned to die. This is what it means to follow Christ. Disgrace characterizes Christian legacy on earth. The disciple resembles his teacher. The servant resembles his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? If they persecuted Christ, they will certainly persecute Christians. Maybe this passage of 1 Corinthians isn't the one you share with someone interested in our faith. But we shouldn't shy away from these truths. Our foundation, our Savior, is Christ crucified, the suffering servant, the man of sorrows. Our foundational leaders, the apostles, are as the filth of the world, the obscuring of all things. A similar fate awaits the rest of us who live godly in Christ Jesus. So we need to expect hardship and rejection from the world. But know that contrary to appearances now, Christians are truly blessed in Jesus. Our Lord promised, blessed are those persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As saints, we rejoice because our names are written up in heaven. I hope that the names of everyone in this room, everyone who hears this maybe later, can call heaven home. I pray you experience this blessedness that's open to all sinners. It's a blessing to know that the Lord forgives lawless deeds, covers sins, erases our debt against him, credits to our spiritual account righteousness apart from works. But before we can truly experience this blessing, we must fully grasp our sinfulness, the curse of sin. Often we go beyond what's written in the Bible. That's called transgression. Often we're puffed up, act with arrogant pride, proclaiming our own goodness. We love and worship ourselves as ungrateful beings. This is simply called idolatry, idolatry of ourselves. 
And by idolatry, we break the first and greatest command. We offend our creator who demands we love and worship him. So the God of holiness has a word against such in Isaiah 13, 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. But the Lord did not leave us in such a state of damnation. He sent his son, God, and man at the same time. Unlike us, Jesus never acted in arrogance, never acted in selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, he esteemed us, his enemies. Though equal with God in essence and status, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It was there that he was crucified in weakness. He himself bore our sins in his, in his own body. As our substitute, he paid the penalty of sins we've committed. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That is, Jesus rose from the grave, ascended to heaven. The Father has given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we look forward to that glorious day, and until that day, we as church follow the example of the apostles, preach the gospel, no matter the cost. We proclaim repentance and remission of sins in Christ's name, So we tell the lost to repent, turn from sin and self-righteousness, turn to Jesus and trust in him. God saves you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You can have eternal life by receiving it as a free gift. You receive it so that you may boast in Jesus and live humbly and thankfully. Let's think about these truths now as we transition to Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, what do we have that we did not receive? When we think about all the grace, whether it's common grace or special grace, however we categorize it, Lord, we were born dependent And Lord, ultimately, all our blessings come from you. You are the fount of every blessing. And Lord, we're thankful that we do have the special blessings, heavenly blessings, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, humble us, Lord, each and every day as we ask ourselves what makes us so different, as we remind ourselves of true grace, And Lord, as we think about what it means to have this status, it does not mean that right now, this moment, that we'll be exalted and accepted by the world. May we give up on such ventures of fantasies of being accepted by the world and living for your glory. Lord, we lay it it down now. Ask us, we ask that um, as you demand of us this 
kind of life. Give us the strength. Pray you'll fill us up with your spirit. May we put to practice the word you've given us. May we understand that a servant's not greater than his master. A teacher is the one that we should follow. So teach us this day, teach us each and every day what it means to follow you, to be humble. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.